missiological methodologies. What methods can we use uh, in our mission work and what methods have been used? Uh, what are the advantages of certain methods and what are the disadvantages? Let's get into that and let's look and see what has worked and what has not worked with Muslims and maybe what are the areas that we need to start working towards. Now, the first method probably that we need to introduce is the method of what we call tent making. Tent making, uh, what Paul did when he went from city to city to city, he made tents. Uh, obviously, we don't make tents today, but we take the term to basically apply to anybody who goes into another culture and uh, has a skill that they bring with them. Going into a lot of cold, uh, closed countries, Muslim countries are closed countries, you can't just go in as a missionary. You need to come with a skill. Uh, and many of the skills that missionaries use are doctors, nurses, uh, engineers, professors, students, even tourists. Not really a skill, but certainly is a way of getting into those countries. And so it's these kind of uh, um, uh, skills that you take with you that cr give you a chance to get into those countries. And that's why we use them. Now, they tend to be uh, very short periods of time because you are going with a job, you go in with a company, or, and therefore you have a contract with that company. Sometimes it could be a year or two years if you're a student, maybe more. As a tourist, you have to go in and out all the time. Uh, you go in for maybe three months and you come out, get your visa again, come back for another three months or six months or however many months you can get depending on the country you're in. So it's not a long-term type of ministry. It tends to be a much shorter term. What are the advantages to tent making? Well, the, one of the advantages is in many countries, it's the only way to get into those countries. Uh, it's because many countries do not, many Muslim countries just do not allow anybody to do evangelistic work, any type of missionary work. The other advantage is that you make contacts almost immediately because you have a job waiting for you. And when you get into that job, you come in and you work whatever that job is. You have a contract, so you're with the people that are there. And so obviously the people you're working with are available. You can talk, uh, contact them immediately. Because the fact that you are provided a job, you have a skill, it's the least risky type of evangelism. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that you're there to do evangelism. You're there to do the job first. Uh, Many times if you go in as a medical worker, as a doctor or a nurse, you come in with status. You have a huge amount of status. And so immediately you don't have to work at that. You don't, uh, people will come and listen to what you say. That's a huge advantage. You don't have to know an awful lot of knowledge of the particular culture or the language. Usually the job that you're working at, either you have translators that are provided for you or the job doesn't require the language. And certainly you don't have to know the culture. You can just move right into that environment. And you don't have to use or raise much funds. Usually you are paid by the company or the government or whatever the agency that sends you there. You don't have to raise the money to go there. So those are the advantages of tent making. The disadvantages. Well, there are a number. First and foremost, um, because of the fact that you are there as a paid employee, you've got to work those hours for the company. You've got to work those eight hours every day. So you don't have much time to do much evangelism. What's more, because you don't come in with the church, you don't know where the church is. Uh, most of the Muslim countries, the church is underground to begin with, and you, it's very difficult to make contact with them. They're not going to want to make a lot of contact with you because you're an unknown, uh, you're an unknown person. You don't, they don't know who you are. And because of that, they're very careful about just exposing themselves. There's no relationship with the church. There's no relationship with Christians there. You're basically on your own. 
Because you are also coming in with a government or with a company, you are also dis, uh, uh, you are also under their auspices, which means they can send you away. They can ask you to leave at any time, especially if they find out that you're do they're doing evangelism. What's more, if when you if and when you do leave, if you have made converts, if you have made con contacts, it's difficult to know what to do with those converts because there's no uh, relationship with the underground church or with the ongoing church and if you want to disciple them then comes the difficulties what are you going to do with these contacts so obviously there are advantages and disadvantages to t uh, tent making the um, second form that I like to talk about is what we call program evangelism program evangelism are basically institutions that have been set up by Christians to bring about evangelism uh, some of the programs that we can think of historically have been hospitals that have been set up schools that have been set up, orphanages that have been set up, clinics that have been set up as a means to get into the country and then through those institutions to preach the gospels out of them. So uh, in, in those kind of environments, you would have a hospital that would be set up by a Christian organization with Christian doctors and Christian nurses and lab technicians who then work for the hospital but then preach the gospel in the hospital. The same way we, we have with schools. It's a school set up by Christian missions with the intention of teaching the gospel as part of the curriculum. What are the advantages to that? Well, there's an awful lot of advantages. First and foremost, many countries, many Muslim countries, do need hospitals, do need schools, do need orphanages, do need clinics, and so they, op they, open, uh, they invite you with open arms. It's very easy to set up these institutions. Another advantage is once you're there, once the hospital has been set up or the school or the orphanage, they usually are permanent. Because they take so much time and energy and expense to set them up, they're not going to be brought down, set down. And what's interesting is if you go around the Muslim world or if you go around through much of the third world, you will see hospitals and schools that have been set up by, orf uh, by, by Christians all over the world, which are the best hospitals and the best schools in the world. I remember after the debate that I had with Benazar Bhutto in the Oxford Union, the very next day she invited me to her house to talk to me. We had a great talk, and she found out that I had grown up and lived in India, and I had gone to a missionary school. And she said, well, do you know that I also went to a Christian school? The school that I was brought up at there in Pakistan was run by Christians, and it was the best school in Pakistan. That's why I was sent there. And she admitted that the best schools in Pakistan were all Christian-led schools, missionary schools. They had the best teachers. They had the best curriculum. They put out the best uh, uh, graduates, and they had the most impact on society. She was very willing. She was very aware that Christian schools do make a huge impact, and this could have been replicated in almost any other country. So certainly there is a great advantage to them. What are the disadvantages? What are the problems? Well, the difficulty with schools and hospitals, more so them than possibly orphanages, is that they cost an awful lot of money. They take an awful lot of time. They take an awful lot of expense and personnel to not only create but to maintain. You have to keep on sending doctors and nurses and personnel and teachers to maintain them, and they can be a real drain on mission budgets. More than that, they also create a what we call a, a an environment around them that can that can 
be not conducive to the gospel. What do I mean by that? Uh, Donald McGavran, when he went to India back in the 1950s, noticed that many of the hospitals and the schools in South India had created a whole cadre of what he called rice Christians. These are people that became Christians for what they could get out of the schools, became Christians so they could go to the schools, became Christians so they could get jobs in the schools, became Christians so they could get jobs in the hospitals, and then therefore did not want to use, do any evangelism because if they evangelized, it would open it up to other people who could take their jobs. And so there was a deterrence there, almost uh, an unwritten rule not to evangelize, and basically became at cross-purpose as to why those, those institutions were even created. Uh, there are many schools today in many countries that were started by Christians that are no longer Christian because of that very thing, that have become quite liberal. They're very academically sound. They may be good hospitals, but they're no longer places where the gospel is being preached. In fact, in some cases, they become a deterrent to the gospel. So that's one of the disadvantages of program uh, evangelism. The third one I would uh, like to use is called proclamation. Now, this is by far the most often used uh, form of evangelism. Proclamation basically means to proclaim Christ and the gospel publicly in any many different venues. To preach it publicly, to speak it publicly, using open airs, using public meetings, uh, using media, tracts, literature, TV, radio, uh, the internet, satellite, all these different ways where you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, you proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, and get it out to as many people as far away as possible. It's by far the most popular way of preaching the gospel. It is certainly the most common form of evangelism. What are the advantages? Well, obviously, you can see the advantages. You get the greatest number of people who hear the gospel through this kind of evangelism. It's very easy to prepare. It's simple to understand. Basically, all you have to do if you want to send tracts or literature or television or videos or CDs or DVDs to other countries who are using other languages, you take that which already exists and just translate it. That doesn't take much personnel. It doesn't take much time. You basically just reproduce what has already been done so that you aren't redundant. And so you can understand why very, uh, an awful lot of mission organizations use this kind of evangelism. It can be very cheap as a result because you're re just reproducing what has already been made in possibly a different languages. There are many examples to follow. It takes very little time. You don't have to reinvent the wheel each time. And it presents your agenda. You have control over what's being, being pro, uh, promoted. You have control over what's going out over the air. You have control over what's coming down through the satellite. Therefore, it uses your background and your experience, and therefore, as a result of that, it's the easiest for many missionaries to use. What are the disadvantages? Well, when you're using specially very expensive type of equipment, to get up to satellite or into internet or to get out DVDs and CDs, it can be very expensive as well. And proclamation on television and radio can cost an awful lot of money. Also, it's a one-way communication. It's only coming one direction. It's coming from this direction out to them. So there's no possibility for reciprocity. There's no possibility for response. And also, there's no possibility for rebuttals. Now, some missionaries might think that's better that there aren't any rebuttals. But to get the gospel across, you need to have an engagement. You need to have a give and take. You need to give the, the hearers a possibility to respond to what they're hearing. So therefore, in many respects, it's the least effective way to win converts concerned uh, with the number of dollars that are used to do it. The fourth form is what we call Irenic or friendship evangelism. Now, Irenic or friendship is basically a broad term that basically stands for 
create sharing relationships, coming together with people from other nations in their environment and basically getting to know them on a friendship one-to-one -one level. So obviously this is something that every, this you might say this is not really a, a different methodology. It's a methodology that everybody uses regardless of whether you're proclaiming or whether you're using programs or whether you're doing tent making. You go in and you, do, you, you create a relationship. That's true. So in some ways it's not right to say it's a different form. It's just part of many forms. But what we mean by Irenic and friendship is basically make it, placing yourself in an environment so that when you go out, you make friends in the tea shop or in people's homes or even in the mosque. You make friends and through those friendship, you then preach the gospel. You give the gospel. It means that you're going to have to incarnate yourself in that environment. You're going to have to go to their meetings. You're going to have to go where they feel comfortable. You're going to have to go to a place that you may not feel comfortable. Visit mosques or in homes. Now, the advantage of this is it's the easiest way to make cold contacts. When you go into a foreign country, you're going to have to make the cold contacts, and the only way to do that is by going to where they are, going to where they congregate, going to where they feel comfortable, so that you can make that face-to-face -face contact. It's the best way and sometimes the only way in many places to make that contact. It's very conducive in what we call irenical cultures, and most Muslim cultures are Irenical cultures. Now that's a big word, a highfalutin word. Irenics really means relational cultures. In the West, we tend to be very individualistic. Uh, we tend to be very isolated in our relationships. Uh, we have no problem spending hours alone by ourselves, studying, reading books, watching TV. We don't need friends to be with us all the time. Maybe sometimes only in the evenings do we like to go out and have times with our friends. We're quite comfortable with that in the West. That's not the case in many Muslim cultures. In Muslim cultures, they would feel very, very threatened to be alone. And that's why you will find in most Muslim cultures, people will, leave, will live ten in a room. It's quite normal for them to have many in one room. We like to be alone in our room, not Muslims. They love to be uh, with other people. They spend all their time with other people. If it's not in the tea shop, it's in the pinch me. If it's not in the pinch me, it's in the mosque. If it's not in the mosque, it's in the marketplace. They're always with other people. They live in extended families. They do not like to live isolated and alone. So therefore, they're very good at communicating. They spend all their time communicating. When they do their studies, they don't do their studies in isolation like we do. They do not read books and then take those books and then write papers and then hand the papers into teachers who grade it and give us a grade, and then that's how they learn. No, they don't learn that way. They're not a literate society. They learn by hearing. They hear by listening to the radio or watching television or going to a Friday afternoon and listening to the khutbah, the preacher speaking at the khutbah. So they're much more of an oral culture. They're much more of a communicative culture. And therefore, they're much more of an ironical culture. Most Muslim cultures are much more ironical than ours. And that's why it's difficult for us as Westerners to go into those cultures and feel comfortable in them. We don't like to sit 11 hours a day and talk about the weather. They do. They have no problem with it. I found when I went to Senegal with my wife in West Africa, where a culture where 92% of the people were Muslims, it was quite normal to get all your job done, all your work done in the morning while it's cool, and then to spend the rest of the day with your neighbor talking about the weather, about sex, about every other thing that we don't like to talk about. They love to talk about it, and they love to rehash it and rehash it. And it was hard for me and my wife to keep awake, let alone to keep interested. 
And yet we had to learn to do that because I like to talk not with people maybe for about 10 or 20 minutes and that's about it. Then I like to study and then I like to go and do this work. I wear a watch on my hand to make sure that I keep to my watch because I've got lots of meetings I need to go to and I've got lots of things that I have, lots of timelines that I need to be punctual for. But my Muslim friends had no watches. They didn't believe that watches were necessary. For them, it had nothing to do with time. It had everything to do with the relationship. It had everything to do with the event. They were event-oriented. And when we would ever have a meeting at a certain time, they could be two hours late. They didn't even know they were late. We knew they were late, and we were always there on time. And we realized that we had to change our whole parameters. This is what it's like to live in these kind of irenic environments. And so irenic relational evangelism is absolutely essential, but it's one of the most difficult to do for those of us who don't come from those kind of environments. It's very conducive when you're living in an ironical relational environment to use this kind of model. Why? Because, first of all, you're not going to be threatening. You're going to be living and working and, and basically exchanging as they do. Also, there's little hostility and there's little persecution. And it's a great way to set a good example. Now, there are problems, obviously. The problems are it takes an awful lot of time and energy. And if you have lots of reports to fill out, if you have lots of, of, of language to learn, if you have lots of meetings to attend, as many missionaries tend to do, then it's difficult to spend an awful lot of time with one or two people all day long. Secondly, it's difficult because once you make a relationship with one individual, and then you make a relationship with another individual, when this individual finds that that individual is also your friend, jealousies form. And this happens all the time. They get very jealous if you are not their best friend because the assumption is that by virtue of making a relationship with them, you then become your, their best friend and you must spend all the time with them. But you can't spend the time with all of them because you only have so many minutes in a day, so many hours in a day. What's more is a lot of times when you make these type of relationships, it's very difficult to introduce the gospel. Many missionaries spend all their time only making friendships, and they may have never introduced the gospel after one or two years. Now, the fifth model, the contextual model. The contextual model starts from the premise of breaking down any social barrier to the gospel by incarnating oneself in the local context. What this means is basically it's a, it's a model that was really became popular in the 1970s, primarily by uh, Phil Parshall in Bangladesh, now being used most effectively possibly by Frontiers Mission, uh, where they send people out to incarnate themselves as much as possible in that environment so that they, not, they do nothing that will incapacitate the preaching of the gospel to those people. They contextualize the gospel. They live like them, they dress like them, eat, sleep, drink, do everything that they do. And they have a whole grade of indexes, a whole scale by which they, they, they talk about concerning C1, C2, C3, C4, C5, up to C6. C1 being the least contextual, C6 being the most contextual. Uh, they would say that someone who is in C6 uh, would be not only living like them, eating, drinking, sleeping, growing a beard. They would look Muslim. They would call themselves Muslim. They would not go to churches. They would go to mosques. Uh, they would pray like a Muslim. Uh, they would also, in some cases, take the scripture and retranslate it so it would not refer to Jesus as a son of God, but Jesus as the Prince of Peace. They would even change scripture so it would not hurt their sensibilities. They would never call Jesus as uh, God's son, or they would also call him as God's messenger. So 
in this way, they, would, they believe that by doing that, they will have contextualized the gospel so it will not be a, a grievance to anybody listening to the gospel and therefore much easier acceptable. Now, that's, the very, that's the, probably the most extreme example, C6. Most missionaries that use a contextual model usually are at C3 or C4. C3 or C4, we did that when we were living in Senegal. And when we went to live in Senegal for five years, we dressed like the Muslims, we, used, we wore grand boo-boos, we ate like them, uh, we walked like them, uh, we talked like them, used their language, used their religious expressions. Uh, we did as much as we could to come alongside them so that we would not look so exposed as foreigners. Now, what are the advantages to the contextual model? Well, there are a number. First of all, it helps you to become part of the culture and adapt very easily. You can move right into the culture and you don't stand out so much as a foreigner. It makes it easier to gain relationships and to gain trust. People tend to be a lot more responsive initially. What do I mean by that? I'll get to that later. The church, the converts, and those who belong to the church do not stand out as foreign or strange. And so, therefore, there usually is not as much persecution when you use the contextual model because most Muslims see this as not as a, they don't see the church as a threat. What are the problems? Well, there are a number of problems. First and foremost, as you could, I could see by your expressions, you were having a problem with the C6 example. It's easy to go too far, it's easy to syncretize the gospel, especially in a Muslim context. In our own example, living in, in, in Senegal, we started dressing like them, wearing the grand boo that all Muslims wore. We started using terms that they would use. Uh, we even prayed like them. Uh, we tried to eat their food, and, and, and they were really excited, and they used to go and introduce us to all their friends as new Muslim converts. And we realized pretty quickly that we were getting the wrong message out. They thought we had converted to Islam. And the reason is very simple. Islam is not just a faith diverse from its culture. Islam engages with its culture. In fact, it incorporates its culture. Remember, we've said this many times. Islam brings the church and state together. So therefore, the way you dress is your religion. The way you grow your beard is your religion. Everything they do is the religion. And so when we come into that context, and when we start dressing like them, they assume that we have therefore adopted the religion. You are what you wear. If you have any doubt, just take a look at the controversies happening in Europe right now with the hijab in France and in Britain. There's a huge controversy as to whether or not Muslim girls should wear hijabs or niqabs or jilbabs or any other kind of bobs because for them, the what they wear defines them. It's an identity marker, a very strong identity marker. And to wear a jilbab or a niqab or a hijab or a purda or any other kind of hijab, by doing that, you are basically stating to the world that you have become a Muslim. So we need to be very careful that we don't do that without real, unintentionally, because that could not only seem, be seen as a threat to Muslims, the much greater danger, it could be seen also as deceit. What do I mean by that? A number of years ago in London, we had a young worker on, uh, working uh, with us who went into the Bangladeshi community there in the East End, and he lived amongst them. He got an apartment right there amongst them. He joined uh, their mosque. He did his prayers there in the mosque with them. He dressed like them, ate their food, took on one of their names, grew a beard, looked just like a Muslim, was doing everything he could to contextualize himself into the culture. They were excited to meet him. They brought him in. They introduced him. They wanted him to get married to one of their girls. And then they found out that he was a Christian. What more, they found out that he wasn't just a Christian. He was a diest. He was a missionary. And they waited for him in the middle of the night. Six men jumped him, and they beat him almost to death. He was almost killed. Even today, he has now double vision. 
He can't see straight because of the number of times they kicked his heads. Why? Because they saw in him no longer a man of God. They saw in him a deceitful individual. Now, you might say, why in the world did he have to do that in London? He didn't have to. But the idea of contextualization was so attractive to him that he thought, why not? This sounds good. Let's be as much like them as Christ came and incarnated himself and became a Jew and ate like a Jew and became a Jew, worked like a Jew, but took on Jewish names as Christ incarnated himself. So should we do the same. What he didn't realize is that Islam does much more than Judaism does. Islam defines itself, especially in a foreign context, it defines itself even stronger as a minority, as minorities always do. They define themselves by how they're not the majority. We need to be very careful that we don't fall into that trap. We need to be very wise. When you start taking scripture and changing scripture, then you've gone too far. And this is what I think some of the contextual models have done. To take the name of Jesus out as Son of God and replace it with Prince of Peace is absolutely too far. Because then who is it that you're introducing the people to? What Jesus do they know? If you're just making Jesus like the Islamic Jesus, then what gospel is that? We must never, ever pervert the gospel. We should be proud to, to be uh, forthright in what we believe especially in the Western context. In a foreign environment, I think every Christian needs to go to every mission agency and talk to the missionaries that are already in situ, the missionaries that have been there for many years, and find out what they say. Find out what works, what doesn't work. They've been there a long time. They know what's right. They know what will work. For heaven's sakes, learn from them. Don't go in assuming that you know everything just because you've learned about it in our Bible schools. The unfortunate thing is, is that the contextual model is the model for today. It's in vogue. Everybody teaches it. Almost every Bible school teaches it. Almost every young, uh, young missionary I know going to the Muslim world wants to practice it. And they're going in without thinking it through. And we're causing an awful lot of damage. More than that, we're causing an awful lot of hurt. And when I talk to my Muslim friends and I ask them what's their impression of Christianity and what's their impression of missions, the first thing they say is, you missionaries are deceitful. Not only do you come and look like us and act like us, you are so apologetic of being Christians, you're so scared. And more than that, you seem to even be ashamed of who you are. Now that's sad that that's the impression they're getting when they think we're ashamed of being Christians. Because Muslims are not ashamed of being Muslims. They're not ashamed of wearing their religion on their sleeve. I say to a lot of my contextual friends, you certainly are very good at walking and eating and learning the language and living amongst the culture. You do everything right, but you must miss the most important point. Because if you really want to be contextual, then why don't you talk like a Muslim? The best way to communicate the gospel to a Muslim is to talk like a Muslim. Be as emphatic as they are for what you believe. Be as forthright as they are. Be willing to die for what you believe. Then you really are being contextual. They've missed that whole side of it. To me, that's the most important ingredient. We'll get back to that a little later. A sixth form, then, is what we call the gospel in the Quran. Going to the Quran and finding stories there to introduce the gospel through it by looking and looking places like uh, Surah 19, Ayah 33, which talks about Jesus, where he says, Blessed be me the day I was born, the day I die, the day I rise again, saying that therefore the Quran does teach that Jesus died and he rose again. Or saying that uh, in um, uh, 
Surah 19, Ayah 19, where it refers to Jesus as the only sinless one, proving that Jesus was the sinless one. This is how they can use the gospel, and there are many missionaries that spend their whole time only in the Quran, finding the gospel within the Quran, and teaching from the Quran, so that Muslims don't have to come to the Bible. They can start with the scripture that they have in front of them. The advantages to this kind of evangelism is that it begins with something they are familiar with, the Quran. They all know the Quran. They trust it. They don't have any problems with it. It doesn't confront their view of who Issa is because Jesus is very clear to them here and they like who they see there. It makes it easier to make contacts because from the point go, you can go right in and introduce Jesus right in the Quran. And it's non-threatening. So those are the advantages. The disadvantages? The difficulty is that when you look for the gospel in the Quran, it's a perverted gospel. It's not the gospel I know. You cannot find the gospel in the Quran. I'm sorry, I don't know of anybody that can really persuade me that you can find the gospel here. Certainly, you can use the Quran, and I use it all the time in my evangelism. I will go to the Quran sometimes to show that from the Quran, Jesus is superior to Muhammad in the Quran. But I'm very clear that this is not my authority. We need to be very careful that we don't use this as our authority. It's a great way to introduce some of the confusion of the Quran. I go to Surah 19 all the time, verse 33, and show that it seems to contradict Surah 4157. Why is this contradiction there? It seems to be a confusion. And I let the Muslims tell me, and I know what the Muslims' answer is. And they say, well, this has nothing to do with the death and resurrection of the past. It has to do with the death and resurrection in the future when he comes a second time. And I assume that they know what they're talking about. If I try to impose my view of Surah 1933 on the Muslim, I am doing the same thing that Muslims do to my Bible when they open up its pages and try to show from verse after verse after verse that Jesus was nothing more than a man because he did not know the end of times because he prayed to God proving he was inferior because he said, How do you, why do you call me good? Only God is good. When they look at my scriptures and they try to pervert the verses there, that is not called proper exegesis. That's called eisegesis. And we need to be careful we don't eisegetically look at the Quran. Impose our own view on the Quran. Because that does nobody any favors. What's more, once you use the Quran as your authority, it's hard to leave it. Because what you have done is you have basically raised the Quran up here. Don't do that to the Quran. The Quran has no authority for you. It has no authority for me. And once you start with the Quran, it's difficult to leave the Quran. Because once you have given it authority, why then would Muslims want to listen to this? So there are times you can use the Quran. I use the Quran every time Muslims say that my Bible is corrupted. I say, hold on, your Quran doesn't let you to say that. I'm not giving authority to the Quran. I'm saying that even the Quran does not accept that the Bible has been, been corrupted. Now, I know that this is their authority, and basically I'm throwing the ball right back in their laps. Okay, the seventh paradigm would be dialogue. We've now looked at some of the forms of getting into relationships, some of the forms of how to use that relationship, some of the forms of how to use methodologies to get the ball going. Now we're going to move into what you do once you're there. What do you do once you have made the contact, once you have the Muslim friends, once you're moving along with them, what can you use? Well, there are really only two models that we have that are available so far. And the first model is what we call dialogue. Dialogue basically starts from the premise of coming together with Muslims, sitting down and talking about uh, ideas that you share in common. Another name for them are mutual, uh, meetings for uh, better understanding, MBUs. 
MBUs are used all over the West. I've been involved in many of them. Uh, a Muslim and a Christian come together. They sit down. They talk about a subject that they agree upon beforehand. The Muslim uh, talks about it from his perspective, and the Christian talks about it from his or her perspective. Uh, these are great for initiating contact with Muslims. Um, they are great for helping Muslims understand what we believe and helping us understand what they believe. They are very politically correct. They're very acceptable to the world at large. Uh, Westerners like them. In fact, I would venture to say it's Westerners who initiate most your MBUs. What are the advantages? Well, the advantage is that they get, you, they get you into contact with Muslims. They bring Muslims and Christians together, to, at least to talk to each other. It creates an atmosphere of mutual understanding to bring about this initial, initial contact. And because of the fact that they are politically correct, they are acceptable even to the secular world at large. What are the problems? Well, one of the most difficult, one of the greatest difficulties I have with dialogues is they don't let you go far enough. The premise behind dialogues is that a Muslim can only talk about their view and a Christian can only talk about their view. And you may not criticize each other's view. So there's an unwritten rule, a very strong rule, that it is not a place for conflict. It is a place for mutual understanding. And that's all it is. And the difficulty is that Muslims don't like that. Rarely have I ever been in a dialogue with Muslims when they haven't started to attack what I'm saying. Almost invariably, they will be the first to initiate the challenge. Bless their hearts. They're so politically incorrect, they do not understand the whole premise behind dialogues. And in doing that, they allow me then to do the same. Now, we're not supposed to, and of course, the whole premise behind dialogues is that you do not confront. You do not confront each other's beliefs. And that's the problem with it right there. They do not go far enough. There is no room for critical analysis. And most importantly, radical Muslims, the ones that are causing all the problems, the ones we need to engage with the most, do not like to come to dialogues. Why? Because they realize that dialogues are basically a Western construct. It's something that Christians like to do. It's not something that Muslims tend not to like to do. And what we have found is that Muslims tend not to come to them in large numbers. At the most, in most of the dialogues I've been involved in, and I've been involved in quite a few, maybe you'll get 20, at the most 25 that come to dialogues. And usually after you have a few dialogues, it's the same five or six Muslims that come to every dialogue. And it's only the ones that have something to present. So you can see it's become an institution that's basically been institutionalized by Westerners. We are the ones that initiate it, we are the ones that maintain it, and Muslims usually fall away from it. So therefore, there is a need to go beyond dialogue. And this is the second paradigm, and this is the one that's causing the most problem, and this is the one that we know as debate or confrontation, the eighth paradigm. A debate, it takes the dialogue one step further, to openly challenge the belief of another person using literature, media, going into public debates. Uh, we have many forms of debates. Uh, I've been involved with over 40 of them. These can be uh, university debates where you have a speaker against a speaker that goes on for half an hour, each one presenting each paper. Then you have two or three uh, rebuttals followed by summations and then open to question and answers from the floor. Or you can have parliamentary style debates where you have four against four different experts or students who try and tend to trivialize the, the, the agenda. They're not as serious. They tend to be more entertainment than, they, than anything else. Or then we have what we call impromptu debates where you have five minutes, five minutes, five minutes, five minutes. These are probably the most popular. They're the, most, they're the easiest to do. And certainly, they're the ones that we use at Speaker's Corner. I use them at book tables. I use them on radio. I use them on, in television. Uh, because you can engage them immediately without much preparation. You can just get right into the, the nub of the matter, each given five minutes back and forth, and then with a summation at the end.
Now, what are the advantages of debate or confrontation? Well, it gets right to the nub of the problem. There are very few vehicles that we have to, that, that we have available to us where we can do that. And more than that, Muslims love them because it fits their culture. They love to debate. When you go across the Muslim world, if you go into tea shops, they are debating. If you go on railway carriages, they are debating. It fits an oral culture. It fits a culture where they exchange ideas through debate. We don't. We don't learn that way. We don't engage that way. So we're not very good at it. And one of the difficulties and one of the disadvantages, one of the problems we have with debate is that we just don't have any good models. The reason why is we don't teach it. There's no school in the world that teaches Islamic debate, that it teaches Islamic polemics. We have no school, therefore we have no models or very few models. In Europe, I'm probably the only one along with one or two other that's doing public debates on an ongoing basis. And those of us who are doing public debates, there's only two or three of us. All of us are not from Europe. We're from outside doing debates for the Europeans because the Europeans refuse to do it because they see it as a too great a problem, much too difficult because it brings too much tension. And that's true. It can create tensions and can goes against our cultural proclivities. Therefore, there's few places to train, even few models to, uh, to copy. Consequently, it's not very popular. Now, there are some people that have come out publicly against debates, men like my good friend Colin Chapman, who has, for the last 10 years, has argued strenuously against debates for a number of reasons. He believes that they just degenerate into polemics, and I say, thank God they do. I love polemics, and I don't call that degenerating. I think that's really what the whoop and woof is. Uh, the fact that he used that word seems to suggest that he doesn't like polemics, he doesn't like arguing, and he doesn't like the tit-for-tat that goes on. And he says many times all it does is just degenerate into tit-and-tat, tit-for-tat, back and forth. And my answer to that is make sure that our material is better than theirs. So if it does go for tit-for-tat, that we have the better material so that we are convincing to the crowd. Unfortunately, we don't tend to have the better material because we don't train people in how to be able to stay what, they, what they're saying in a two-minute soundbite. We're not good at going face-to-face -face with Islam in a public context. The cut and parry that is needed for debate. We just don't train people to do that except at Speaker's Corner. And that's one of the best and only training grounds I know in the world where you can train to do just that. He says that we are hope helpless with Muslim opponents because they have the better research. That should not be. We certainly should have the better research. We certainly have the better material. And I know in almost every debate we have at Speaker's Corner, we win every one of those debates. You can go up on YouTube and look at some of the debates we have there. Why? Because we have done our research. The problem is we just don't have many people that can do it. We need more of them. So he would, uh, would call for a complete cessation, cessation of debates. And I would say just the opposite. We must not have a cessation of debates. If anything, we need to train up a whole new generation to do just that. Why? Because we're dealing with a whole new area of Islam, a whole more, much more radicalized Islam that is growing pervasively right across the world. Let me give you reasons why. If you just look at the statistics, you can see. Back in 2004... Pew International did a survey, and they wanted to take a, each country, one country to represent each part of the Muslim world. So they took Turkey up here to represent Europe, and they took Morocco to represent Africa, and they took Jordan here to represent the Middle East, and then they took Pakistan over here to represent Asia. And they asked thousands of people within these countries whether or not they supported Al-Qaeda, whether or not they supported the radical agenda. Up here in Turkey, 31% supported the radical agenda. That's quite a few. Over here in Morocco, 45% supported the radical agenda, had not become radicalized. In Jordan, it was over 50%, about 55% 
were now have become radicalized. Over here in Pakistan, 65%. Now stop and think that through. 65%. A country, the second largest Muslim country on earth, over 140, maybe as many as 150 million Muslims, 65% makes it 80 million Muslims have now become radicalized. In a country, Pakistan, that invited Osama bin Laden and Ibn al-Zawahiri from over here to come over here and set up shop, a country that created the Taliban, who became the Taliban, who moved in and took over Afghanistan, invited al-Qaeda to set up shop there, a country that even today we can still not find those two men, though we have a 25 million uh, bonus on their heads, a bond on their heads, we still cannot find them because they're being sequestered by these 80 million radical Muslims. A country where the madrasas in the northern frontiers are pouring out 1.7 million Taliban every year. And this is a country that has a nuclear bomb. We have to deal with these radicals over here. How are we going to deal with it? Well, many people say, let the government do it. Let the American military do it. You can see what the American military has done. They've already pushed the Taliban. They thought out of Afghanistan, the Taliban are coming back in again. Why? Because the military can only do so much. The military can police the world. It can protect us from many of the, uh, of the atrocities that happen. But it cannot deal with radical Islam. Why? Because radical Islam is an ideology based on a text and based on a paradigm of the Prophet Muhammad. The only way you can deal with an ideology like this is with a better ideology. And who do you think has the better ideology? We do. We're the only ones that can deal with the Quran. The government cannot. For one very good reason. The government is over here. The church is over here. The government can only deal with the affairs of state. Tony Blair, my ex-prime minister and, um, um, before Gordon Brown, used to get up in public and used to say, I could have read this Quran three times through, and all I see is peace and tolerance. Now, why in the world was he saying that? I would like to know what Quran he was reading, because it's certainly not the Quran that I'm reading, with 149 sword verses. Why did he say that? He's a politician. As a politician, he had to say that. He had no other option. Why? Because as a politician, he has a constituency that he's responsible for. And many of those in his constituency are Muslims. Therefore, he cannot say what he knows. He dares not say what he knows. What would happen if he were to get up there and say, I have read this book all the way through three times, and I see an awful lot of violence. There would be vigilantes in the next day. There would be people who would be out in the street calling for his resignation. There would be every one of the ambassadors for every Muslim nation would be pulled home and he would, have to re he would have to apologize publicly for what he had said. He dare not criticize the Quran. No government is going to criticize the Quran. Look what happened just last year with the Danish cartoons. The Dan look what happened to the Danish government and the difficulties they came under with those 12 cartoons that were published on Muhammad. That's why they don't expect the government to take on this battle. This is not their battle. This is our battle. The only way you can take on an ideology is with a better ideology. We have it. The only way you can take on radical Muslims is with radical Christians. And I'm looking at some right here. This is the radical Christians. You're the ones who are going to have to do it. Don't wait for the government to do this. Now, we have a dilemma in mission, mission circles because we are not dealing with radical Muslims. Almost every one of our paradigms, almost every one of the models I have just given you, almost all of them are dealing only with nominal and liberal Muslims. They don't want to deal with the radicals. They don't want to deal with them because for one very obvious reason, they don't think they can. 
And yet it's odd that for that reason we have no schools to train people how to debate, no schools to train people how to confront, no schools anywhere in the world to train people how to use polemics to basically confront the radical Muslims with their foundations. Because the foundation of radical Islam is this book right here. The foundations are well known, we know the problems, we know where they exist, and we need to start confronting them. We have the material, but the problem is we have no school teaching it. There's no school in the world I know that's teaching Muslim polemics outside of possibly Biola University in, in, in California. There's no, therefore, no models of people who are actually experts in this field outside of a few of us who are doing it, and we're hopeless at it because we've not been trained as well. We're doing it, as, excuse my quote, by the seat of our pants. So therefore, since we don't have any schools, since we don't have any model, we need to ask the question, should we be using this model? Well, I'd like to ask whether or not this model has ever been used before. And probably the best thing to do is to go right back to the first century and look and see what was used in the first century. Let's go back to the models that were there. And let's go back to Jesus himself. Did Jesus use confrontation? Well, we do know that he certainly did. We know that he was certainly ironic when he was with Nicodemus. We knew that he used mild opposition with the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, verse 16. Uh, we know that he used opposition with the Pharisee and the Herodians in Mark 12, verse 13. We also knew that he used uh, opposition with the Pharisee uh, host at the dinner party in Luke 7, verse 36 to 50. And certainly with the Samaritan woman in John 4, he opposed her. But did he use confrontation? Yes, he did. Remember the money changers in the temple in Matthew 21, verse 12 to 13, or Luke 19, verse 45. In both those cases, we see Jesus very confrontational going into the temple, overturning the tables, chasing out the money changers. That's a side of Jesus that we don't like to preach about. That's a side of Jesus we don't like to talk about. That's a side of Jesus that we no longer want to emulate. Or if you want to talk about opposition, look and see what he did in Matthew 23, verse 13 to 33, where he confronted the Pharisees that were confronting him, calling them hypocrites. You den of vipers, you white sepulchers, over and over and over and over again. That's my Jesus. That's the side of Jesus we don't hear preached about anymore, do we? Certainly Jesus used confrontation. But if you want to talk about confrontation, probably the best person to go to is Paul. Paul is the, probably the best model. Why? Because Paul was a man that loved to confront. And I think God chose Paul for a reason. Now, when he chose him, he wasn't Paul, he was Saul. Saul was an interesting man. He was a Jew, but he wasn't just any Jew. He was a Jew that belonged to the Shammai school. Now, the Shammai school has lots of parallels. In fact, early Judaism in the first century have parallels with radical Islam today. There are two parties in early Judaism that parallel two parties that we have in Islam today. On this side, you have the Hillel school and the Shammai school. The Hillel school that wanted to reform Judaism from within. The Shammai school that wanted to reform Judaism from without. The Hillel school that did not use violence. The Shammai school that did use violence. The Zealots were Shammai. Saul was a Shammai. He, could, he had no problem with violence. Over on this side, in Islam, we also have very similar schools. You have the Hizb al-Tahir party that wants to reform Islam from within. They want to make Muslims better Muslims, bring them back to the Quran, bring them back to the prophets, example, bring them back to the 7th century model. And then you have the Mahajurun, the Mahajurun, the more radical group that we have there in Britain uh, that wants to basically take them back to the 7th century model of those that went with Muhammad up to Medina. They would like to reform Islam from without. They would like to take down every structure, eradicate it, using the sword if need be, to bring in the Khilafat, the Islamic State. Saul would have been very comfortable as a Mahajurun. 
Why? Because Saul was a Semite. So you see the parallels in both situations. Let's go one step further. Saul was a man who knew his scriptures. The radical Muslim is a man who knows his scriptures. Saul was a man who is willing to use violence. A radical Muslim is willing to use violence. Saul was a man who wanted to create a theocratic state. The radical Muslim wants to create a theocratic state. Saul was a man with passion and charisma. Most of my radical friends have passion and charisma. Can you see the parallels? We can see the parallels today. I think God used Saul for a reason. Saul was on his way to Damascus to bring the Christians back in change and bring them back to Jerusalem and to kill them if they refused. That's my soul. God met him in a dynamic way there on the path to Damascus and he took away that sword that he was going to use and gave him this sword, a much better sword. So when Saul became Paul, he no longer had to use a sword. But Paul still retained everything that he had as Saul. He still had a charisma. He still had passion. He still knew his scriptures. He still understood and was a, had status within his community. And what Paul did, as Paul, you can see, he used confrontation right, left, and center. Look at chapter 17 and 19 of Acts and just read it and see what Paul did. Whether he was in Laodicea or Cappadocia or Berea or there in Ephesus, the first thing he did was to go into the synagogue and confront the Pharisees with what they had done to the scriptures, how they perverted them, what they had done to the Messiah. He said to them, you have been waiting for hundreds of years for this Messiah, and the first thing you do when you see him is you crucify him. That's confrontational. Oh, they did not like him. Look and see how they treated Paul. Sometimes they disregarded him. Sometimes they turned their back on him. Sometimes they threw him out of the synagogue. Many times they put him into prison. Twice they tried to stone him. He caused a riot there in Ephesus. And then finally they killed him in Rome. That's my Paul. You do not get stoned or confronted. You do not get thrown into prison and whipped and finally killed unless you confront. Certainly Paul knew how to confront. We need to look for our souls. And make them into Pauls. Because the Pauls of this world are the ones that are going to stop the Abduls and the Ahmads, my radical Muslim friends. They're the only ones that can do so because they start from the same paradigm. They understand what makes them tick and they understand their weaknesses the best. And we are the ones that are going to have to train them up. And we are the ones that are going to have to model for them. And we are the ones that are going to have to take them on hand for hand. Now, let's go through and let's, let's ask. Let's more, more specifically... I think there is a fear in the church today to do just that. I think there is a fear in the church today because we are scared that we're going to hurt the sensibilities of the Muslims. The contextual model, I think, is symptomatic of that fear. We want to come alongside them and be like them, even, yes, change the gospel so we don't hear their sensibilities. And I'd love to ask Paul whether or not he ever thought that. Did Paul, do you ever hear Paul ever changing the gospel? Do you ever hear Paul ever changing the style of speech or changing the clothes he wore or trying to become along like them and trying to make sure that he didn't hurt their sensibilities? Do you think sensibilities was even in his vocabulary? Absolutely not. And I think we need to be just as courageous as Paul. In fact, I think we need to go back to Matthew 10. I think we need to go back. If you have your Bibles, open to Matthew 10. Because Matthew 10 is an interesting chapter. Matthew 10 is basically the commissioning of the 12. The commissioning of the 12 disciples. Look at Matthew 10 and look what it says in verse 16. Jesus says to the 12, I am sending you out as like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. He's sending us out as sheep amongst wolves. Then look what he says from verse 19 down to verse 23. And I'm just going to paraphrase it. I'm not going to read it all. We don't have time. He says, you are going to be hated for the gospel. 
you are going to be persecuted. He says, you are going to be jailed. Expect it. You're going to be arrested. And more than that, you are going to be killed. Those are the four things he promises him. Hated, persecuted, jailed, and killed. Wow. How many of us are commissioned like this? I was never commissioned this way. How many of you were commissioned like this? Before you go out, is this the kind of commissioning we get? How many of us are told that what we do is going to make people hate us? What we do is going to bring upon persecution to us? What we do is going to throw us into jail, into, into prison? And what we do is going to make us, possibly some of us, be killed? How many of us have had that kind of commissioning? I think we need to go back to this commissioning. Every one of the disciples was hated. Every one of them was persecuted. They were all thrown into jail, and every one of them was killed except for John. If that is their commissioning, it should be my commissioning. It should be your commissioning. Verse 34, Jesus goes on and says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to turn the man against his father, a daughter against her mother. He says, basically, the sword's going to be used against you. This is not a sword that you use. You are going to have the sword used against you. You are going to be turned against your father. You are going to be turned against your mother. And then further on in verse 38, it says, And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. If we're not willing to be persecuted, if we're not willing to bear that cross, we're not worthy of Jesus Christ. Verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He expects us to lose our life. Folks, we're in a battle now, and this is a class of civilization, whether you like it or not. Radical Islam is growing and growing and growing. We do not have the luxury anymore of just getting alongside them and dialoguing with them and making friends with them. Folks, we're going to have to take on these people whether we like it or not. Islam is growing too fast. The statistics all bear that out. By through 2020, this religion will be the largest religion in the world, bar none. It'll be larger than Christianity, both Catholics and Protestants put together. By 2050, it'll be the largest religion in France. Some say by 2070, it'll be the largest religion in Britain, the country where I live. Just through demographic turns, just by demographic growth, they are growing larger than any other. We can no longer sit by and let this religion grow. We have, to, we have no other choice but watch the people grow, but we need to bring them back to God. We need to introduce them to the person of Jesus Christ, not just as a messenger, not as a failed prophet, but as Lord. And we need to say so confidently, and we need to be like Paul, who is willing to do so, to go into the synagogues, that means to go into the mosques, to go into the eating houses, to go into the, the chai dukans, to go on the book tables, yes, even come down to Speaker's Corner, and be willing to say exactly what we believe, because I don't see how we're going to stop Islam any other way. Not in my lifetime. I think we need to go back to that first century model. It's a great model. Christ used it. Paul used it. We need to use it. And in conclusion, then I think, let me just wrap up what I'm saying. I think as Christians, we need to move beyond our fear of repercussion. I think we are paralyzed. I think we are completely incapacitated by this fear. I hear it every time. Every church I go to, the first question that is made, asked me, aren't you scared for losing your life? Aren't you scared of your own security? Why is that the first question? Did anybody ask Paul that? Did anybody ask the disciples that? Peter, who even was willing to die upside down because he did not want to die as Christ died? He didn't feel worthy enough? James, the brother of Jesus, almost every one of the disciples, did they ask them that first before they went out and preached the gospel? Why are we asking that? Why should that be a concern for us?
It is my commissioning to die for God. And when I go into battle with Muslims, anytime I say that Jesus has died on the cross, that is going to be confrontational. Anytime I say that Jesus is Lord, that will be confrontational. I have to, yes, I have to preach the gospel. We need to get beyond this fear of repercussion. We need to move beyond our fear of our own security. We need to move beyond Muslim sensibilities. Listen, if we spend all the time trying to placate Islam, Islam is just going to grow right around us. We've got to start confronting them head on. We have no other choice. They're growing too fast. We do not have that luxury anymore. We need to move beyond dialogue and move into debate. We need to teach Christian apologetics and polemics, both of them side by side, so that we can take on their challenges and throw it right back again and introduce the gospel through it. We need to publicly proclaim and confront this book. This is the book that's causing all the problems. I know it because I see it. I can see what the Muslims are doing with it. I can see how it's infusing them, how it's in, basically it's controlling them. And what they're doing is what I read in its pages. We've got to confront that, which is the revelation for all the problems that we see going on over here. We've got to confront the prophet. The two taboos that we're told in seminary and in Bible school we must not confront. Whose agenda is that? It should not be our agenda. That's the Muslim's agenda. You can see why it's their agenda, because they are so fearful of the weakness of this book. They know, they know of all the problems that this book entails. More than that, we've got to, uh, we've got to start creating leaders who are willing to model for the rest of the world. I'm amazed sometimes when I'm at Speaker's Corner, some of the Egyptian Christians who come down, watch me, they come and they hug me and they have tears in their eyes and they say, we have never seen this in 1400 years. Never in Egypt have we seen somebody do what you're doing here. Could you please come in Egypt and do this? And I can't. There's no way I could do that now. But I can do it in Britain. I can do it in America. I can do it in Brazil. I can do it all over South America. I can do it most all over Africa. I can do it most of Asia. There are many, many countries, even Muslim countries, where I can do it. Why are we not doing it? Why are we not modeling? Because the freedoms we do have, why aren't we modeling for the rest of the world, for the Muslims, the Christians in the Muslim world who are being persecuted, why are we not modeling for them other possibilities? So that, yes, maybe in our lifetime, it could be done in their own countries. Folks, we have a great task ahead of us. We need to be the first to be able to do it. We need to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just in the comfort of our own areas, but also to go out where the battle is being fought. I have a picture I've seen, I think, uh, that has been used before of a boat that's going out into the harbor. It's actually going out of a harbor into the English Channel, and behind it is a beautiful harbor. And in behind it are these boats that are sitting in the sunlit light of this beautiful harbor. And this boat, as it's going out, there are some dark clouds. It's about to go out into a storm. It's leaving the beautiful... Uh, security of its own harbor going out into this great big storm and underneath the picture is this phrase a boat in the harbor is safe but that's not what boats are made for it's safe to remain amongst our own kind it's safe to use the models that have always been working for the last few centuries it's safe not to hurt someone's sensibilities it's safe yes it's safe to be with people that are like us people we can take home to tea people who do not argue with us people who agree with us it's safe to be amongst those kind of people but that's not what we're made for. We're not made for that because we can see the early church was not made for that. The early church was willing to pay the price. Are we willing to pay that price? I love that commissioning in Matthew 10. That should be our commissioning. That should be my commissioning. Unless we are willing to die for what we believe, we're not going to see Islam brought to its knees. 
Folks, we need to be as radical as the Muslims. Oh, even more radical as the Muslims. We have been given models by Jesus Christ, by Paul himself. And if it was good enough in the first century, it is good enough in the 21st century. Let's look for our Sauls and make them into Pauls. Let's look for our Saulines and make them into Paulines. I don't even know if those names fit. Nonetheless, folks, we need to be like men like Paul. Are you ready to do that? Ready to come with me? If so, I can see Islam brought to its knees in our lifetime. That's my prayer. I hope it's yours as well.